good it is to sing songs of praise to our God. He is worthy of it. Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, or 16 through 21. Chapter 1. My fault that that says chapter 2. It's chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Peter 2, 16 through 21. The title of our message today is Scripture Alone. So I'm going to read. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. 2 Peter 2, 16 through 21. This is the Word of God. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We continue today our study of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, For many years, the Roman Catholic Church had been growing not only in its influence and in its adherence, but also in its erroneous teachings, its abuses of the faith. And in the 1500s, some people um, really didn't just start then, but that's the time period that it's often attributed to. In the 1500s, some people um, who came to be known as the Reformers, they sought to um, correct the false teaching and practices of the Catholic Church. And the result of that was what has been known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Some of the main points of the Reformation are summarized as the five solas of the Reformation. Let's see if if we can remember some of these solas today. First of all, uh, what does sola mean? It's a Latin word. It means, there you go, alone, only, alone. Well, either of those, only or alone. So we think of the five solas, the five alones, the five onlys. All right, let's see if we can say them together. Uh, Let's do this. I'll say the Latin, you say the English, okay? Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Uh, Sola scriptura. Uh, Hold on, hold on, I'm going out of order. I don't want to mess you up, all right? Uh, That's the one that's on my mind today. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Uh, Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. There's not really a specific order to them. That's just the order that we've been learning them in. All right, so we've been putting them into a sentence so that we can kind of put them all together and, and understand what, what this framework is for salvation. Here we go. Salvation, let's say it together, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. All right, next week, Lord willing... Be here. We're looking at Soli Deo Gloria, and we want to say that loudly together, okay? Uh, so if you need to work on it some this week, we'll say that together. But that is a great framework for understanding the Bible's teaching about salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. 
Now, we started with grace alone. We looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and we learned that salvation is a free gift of God based on His choice to love and save, not our works to earn His love and salvation. And we looked at faith alone from Romans 5, 1 through 11, and we said that confidence of salvation only comes when we're completely depending. That's a, a, a word for faith, a phrase for faith, when we're completely depending upon Jesus for salvation. And then last week we looked at Christ alone, and um, I don't know about you, but I just really enjoyed uh, walking through Hebrews chapter 9. Hopefully you had a chance to look back at that this week. And we learned that our need for a redeeming mediator has been perfectly met in Christ alone and in no one else. But I want to ask you a question. How do we know this? How do we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? What is serving as the foundation for our beliefs regarding this? Is it, is it my opinion? Is it the opinion of the reformers that we've kind of been talking about? Was it the opinion of the church fathers who came before them? What about the Pope and papal decrees? What about various church councils? Where do our or should our beliefs come from? The answer is sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. The Reformers argued that the Catholic Church had strayed away from the teaching of Scripture and was placing more weight upon the teaching of the Church and the decrees of the Pope than they were upon the Word of God, which was true. And so it could be argued that, in a way, the most foundational point of the Reformation was a desire to return to Scripture, a desire to get back to God's Word. Because if they didn't do that, they weren't going to be able to reform other doctrines of the faith that had been twisted into something that they were never intended by God's word, by God to be. Today I want us to look at this passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21, as we consider this scripture alone uh, principle of the Reformation. Let me summarize this passage this way. In a world full of opinions, the Bible is the final authority. It's a simple statement. I want it to be simple, but it's so, so, so very important. In a world full of opinions, the Bible is the final authority. Our text comes today from uh, Peter's second letter that we have in Scripture. Peter, the, the human author of this, uh, was an apostle of Jesus. You read that in the very opening line of this letter. He left his job as a fisherman to follow Jesus. He walked and talked with Jesus throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the same Peter who denied even knowing Jesus the night that Jesus was crucified. Uh, he, he, he was there in the empty tomb, saw that it was empty. Uh, Jesus restored him. He forgave Peter. He called him to feed his sheep, to be a, a pillar in the, in the new church. Uh, Peter preached at Pentecost. Many people came to know Christ, and Peter gave his life, suffering in lots of different ways to making Christ known all around the world. And as he writes this letter, Peter believes that he's in the final days of his life on this earth. He says in chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, chapter 1, 13 through 15, he says, I think it right. As long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since the putting off of my body, that's his way of speaking about death, will be soon. He thinks it's coming soon, his death. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Well, what, what, is, he, what is he wanting to, to recall? What's he wanting to remind them of? What's his point in writing this letter? Well, it appears that Peter writes this letter for the following reasons. The Christians were facing uh, false teaching. There's false teaching all around them. And, and this false teaching is presenting to them 
both a temptation to doubt the promises of God and it's presenting them with the temptation to go away from godly living and into sinful living. Let me highlight a few verses uh, quickly so we can see the overall point of the letter. Peter begins by rooting their salvation in in really God's grace. You look at uh, the second half of verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God our Savior, uh, God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so there's he's writing to Christians. They've received salvation based on the righteousness of Jesus. There's the in Christ alone through faith. There's the faith alone. Um, and, uh, and, and so... That's that's his audience, people who have trusted in Christ for salvation. But he calls them, if you scan your eyes on through chapter 1, he calls them to a life of godly living. This godliness is based on their calling from God, if you look at chapter 1, verse 3. And having been granted the very great promises, these precious promises of God, he says in verse 4, they want to keep growing. And they want to see this growth take place in their lives. And, and as they grow, they're going to grow in confidence, making sure their calling and election is sure. You see that in verse 10. As they look forward to entrance, verse 11, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then if you, if you go on to chapter 2, you're going to see that he dives into this topic of false teachers. Um, I think chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, we'll just pull these verses out and highlight them. It'll provide us with a good summary of these false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, you can look in your Bible and see this. They count it, he's speaking of the false teachers, they count it uh, pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So the false teachers were among the church. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. So it's not just that the false teachers are saying wrong things. It's that they're also living wrong lifestyles, sinful lifestyles. And they're seeking to draw the, the believers in Christ into their teaching and into their sinful lifestyles. And then if you go to chapter 3, one of the main false teachings we see there in chapter 3, verse 4, is that they're saying that Jesus isn't going to come back. That Jesus isn't coming back. Chapter 3, verse 4, Peter says, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? In other words, what's happened to that promise? He, Jesus isn't coming back. And so the false teachers are denying the promise that Jesus will return, and that's their basis for living in sin. Because think about it, if Jesus coming, isn't coming back, then he's just a fraud. He's a liar because he said he was. And it doesn't then really matter how we live. And so that's the argument that the false teachers are making. But Peter uses scripture to prove them wrong. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, the, the return of Jesus? Because Jesus is coming back, because his promises will prove to be true, because they always have proven to be true. That's him going back to Scripture there in chapter 3. He says, then in light of that, what kind of lives should we be living? Godly lives. Holy lives. As we wait upon the return of Jesus. So Peter writes this letter to call on Christians to pursue godly living in the face of false teaching as they wait upon Christ's return. But what about our passage for today? Chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. Where do these verses fit into the letter? I think in these verses, Peter is reminding his readers of the foundation for that right belief and right practice that he's calling them to. And that foundation is the Word of God. First of all, in this passage, Peter seeks to remind the Christians of his credibility in verses 16 through 18. He, he, he reminds them of that by reminding them that he's an eyewitness of Jesus. You know, eyewitnesses, that they, they saw it with their own eyes. 
he, he, in verses 16 through 18, he says, I am an eyewitness of Jesus. Not only of Jesus just as a, a human walking around and looking like us, but of Jesus taking on aspects of the glory that he had in heaven. He takes Peter in verses 16 through 18. He takes his readers back to this incredible moment in his life. As, a, as an apostle of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And, and we know that event as the Mount of Transfiguration. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9. I want to I read it from Matthew chapter 17. Just to remind us, or maybe you've never heard um, this, this part of God's Word, this, this thing that happened in the life of Jesus and some of His disciples. Matthew 17, we find these words. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter. There we go. All right, so Peter. That's who's writing this letter. And James and John, his brother, James and John were brothers. And they led these three, he led these three up a high mountain by themselves. And he, that's Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's going to set up camp, okay? He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What an incredible moment. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I, I sit and try to imagine what that would be like, but I don't think we can really fully imagine the, the glory of that moment, to see Jesus shining with the, with the light of heaven upon him. And so Peter here points back to that event as evidence that, hey, I'm an, I'm an eyewitness of Jesus. He says in verses 16 through 18, let's read those verses again in light of the story of the transfiguration. Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't make up this stuff when we came to you and preached to you. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. What a wonderful name for God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him. On the holy mountain. Man, Peter's saying, do you want a reason why you should believe me rather than all these false teachers who say Jesus is never coming back? I'll give you a reason. I've seen Jesus. And not only have I walked and talked with him, I have seen him shine with the glory of heaven. Standing next to Moses and Elijah, just for kicks, right? I mean, I've seen that. I've heard God the Father speak from heaven, confirming the identity of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. Now, that would seem like enough evidence for Peter to rest his case. Listen to me, I've seen Jesus. But what Peter says next is, I think, absolutely incredible. I mean, think about what he's just talked about. I've seen Jesus transfigured before my eyes. And then look at verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. Say, what? Peter, did you just say what I think you said? You told us we have something more sure than you seeing Jesus transfigured before your eyes? That's exactly what Peter says. What is this more sure thing? He says it's the prophetic word. 
That's Peter's way of saying God's word written down, scripture, holy scripture. And we see him use the word scripture later in this passage. Specifically, Peter's referring to that Old Testament scripture, the the Hebrew scriptures. He says, we have something more sure of the prophetic word. Let, Let me go ahead and share with you the first of three truths about scripture that I want to see Peter making. The first is this. Only scripture should serve as the foundation for our doctrine. When I say doctrine, meaning our beliefs, what we believe, only scriptures to serve as a foundation. That's what Peter is doing here. He's rooting even his eyewitness testimony in the word of God. He's saying, don't just believe because I'm telling you that I've seen him. Go back to God's word. It's a more sure word. If I could take a poll today and ask, which would you prefer to have? Video footage of Jesus. That you know that you could trust that you know wasn't just photoshopped, right? A, a real footage of Jesus on, on a video on your on your phone on your TV, or the Bible. I think many of us, if we're honest, we might would choose the video footage. We might would say, "I'd like to see him with my eyes." But Peter would say, "Give me the Bible." Give me the more sure word. Give me the written revelation of God. Notice how Peter doesn't merely rest his case upon his eyewitness testimony. He rests his case upon the written revelation of God. He points them back to that. He says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, the scripture, the written word of God. Friends, how often do we fail to give proper weight to the written word of God? It is his very word to us. Here's someone who walked and talked with Jesus, who saw him shine with the glory of heaven while standing next to Moses and Elijah. And he's saying, pay attention to the prophetic writings. <laughs> pay attention to this word written down. Open up the scriptures and let them serve as the foundation for what you believe. This isn't meant to devalue the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. That eyewitness testimony is incredibly important. In fact, one of the tests of credibility for the New Testament books of the Bible, is what we might would call apostolic authority. In other words, uh, are the books that we're including in the New Testament, and the answer is yes to this, they are, but are these books um, either written by uh, an apostle or are they very much connected to an apostle who saw Jesus or very much in agreement with the apostolic witness, with what Peter and James and John and the other apostles saw? It's important. The eyewitness testimony is important. But Peter is telling these Christians that they need to listen to him, not merely because of what he has seen with his own eyes, but because of what he has seen is in keeping with the Scriptures. He's not telling them anything new. He's just telling them what God has already revealed in his Word. Yes, it was great that Peter saw Jesus transfigured, but these Christians could be just as confident in their faith, even though they didn't see Jesus. They didn't see Jesus transfigured. They could be just as confident in their faith, stand just as firm in the face of false teachers, because they have this word of God, this written word that Peter says is a more sure basis for belief. Now, I think Peter's words here should, should do two things. It should elevate our view of God's word, and the role it should play in our lives. And at the same time, I think it should, I'll say it this way, it should quiet 
our sometimes overexcitement of attempts at visual retellings of biblical stories. That's what I mean by that. We get really excited about movies or television shows or theatrical performances displaying the stories from God's Word. I've been in some of those performances, some of those theatrical performances in the church setting. When I was a young child, I remember passing out uh, VHSs back when we <laughs> bought and watched VHS tapes. I remember passing those out in our community, and it was a video of the life of Jesus, and it was an evangelism tool that I think did great things. About 17 years ago, a major Hollywood production was released depicting the passion of the Christ. Right now, a, a multi-episode, multi-season series, television series, is being produced and, and released detailing the life of Jesus and even other stories from, from God's Word, even some from the Old Testament. And, and it's pretty good. It's, it's, a, it's pretty good. Now, some of the theatrical portray, portrayals of Jesus are way more Hollywood than they are Bible. But some of, some of them aren't bad. Some of them try to be faithful to the text of Scripture. But we have to remember, God's Word is better than the very best theatrical portrayal of Jesus or the stories of Scripture. God's Word is better. We should be far more excited. Hear me when I say this. We should be far more excited to sit down with an open Bible and read God's Word than to turn on the TV or open a streaming app to watch a recreation of God's Word. No matter how accurate that retelling appears to be, we should be far more excited to sit with our Bibles Whenever I hear someone get really, really excited about a visual portrayal of Scripture in a drama or a movie, I can't help but wonder if that might be evidence um, that maybe they're not very excited about God's written Word in their lives. They're so excited to finally have this theatrical portrayal, maybe because they haven't been spending time in the Word of God. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch those or be a part of those productions, but I do think we should always do so under a big banner that says proceed with caution. Proceed with caution because what we're about to watch is not God's Word. It's our attempt at retelling God's Word, but it's not the Word, the written Word of God. We have something better. Peter actually saw Jesus. He didn't even see Him on TV or as an actor on stage. He actually saw Jesus. And yet he says, we have something more sure, the written word of God. And sometimes you hear people say that these theatrical productions of the Bible make the Bible come to life. I think I've probably said that before. It just makes the Bible come to life. Friends, God's word is already alive. It's already alive. God doesn't need us to make his word come to life. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you want to see godly change in your life? Open up your Bible and read. Do you want to not be led astray by false teaching? Open up your Bible and read. Do you want to help others have eternal life, be led to Jesus? Well, get them God's Word. Teach them God's Word. If they don't have God's Word in their language, let's do whatever it takes to get God's Word into their language. Only Scripture served as the foundation for Peter's doctrine. And church family, only Scripture should serve as the foundation for our doctrine. Let me share with you another truth that I think we learned from this passage. It's this. 
Only Scripture will light the way until Jesus returns. Only Scripture will light the way until Jesus returns. This point is simple. Simple to see. Simple to understand. But not always simple to put into practice. It takes work to put this into practice. Look at the second half of verse 19. Speaking of this prophetic word, which is the written word of God, Peter says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's Peter saying? Well, he's telling the believers that they need to pay attention to the word of God, not just have it, but pay attention to it in the same way that you would pay attention to a lamp that's shining in the dark. Let's go to the dark for just a minute. What do you need most when you're in the dark? You need a light, right? When you're in the dark, the thing that you need most in that moment is a light. What do you need most when you're walking in the dark? You need that light to light the way. You need that light not, not shining somewhere else. You need it shining where you need to go, lighting your way. What do you need most when you're walking in a dangerous place in the dark? You need something to light the way and make visible the dangers that lie along that path. Those dangers that you need to avoid. Brothers and sisters, we are walking in a dark world full of dangers. We are walking each day in a dark world full of dangers. Dangers like false teaching. Dangers like temptations to choose sin instead of godliness. Dangers to give in to cultural pressures to change our beliefs concerning certain teachings of Scripture. Dangers to stop trusting in the promises of God. And so what do we need? We need something that will light the way and make visible the dangers that we must avoid. And what is that light? It's not the Pope. It's not a papal decree. It's not the clever preaching of a pastor or teacher. It's not any other work of literature. What we need is what we have, and that light is the Word of God. Scripture, the Bible. But friends, the light does no good if we ignore it. The light does no good for us if we ignore it. We see Peter saying, pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. Friends, are you paying attention to God's Word? Are you regularly reading God's Word, studying God's Word, memorizing God's Word, sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word? Listen, there are people in our world today who are wandering through our dark world without the light of God's Word. Some people don't have it in their own language. Some people, it's been translated in their language, but they don't have access to it. They don't have a copy of it. So one application is we need to vigorously work to get them the light of God's Word. That's why we're taking the offering this Christmas season for international missions. But we're not in the same boat as they. We have access to God's Word. Most of us carry it around in our pockets on things called smartphones. We can access it on our computers. We can buy copies of it all day, every day for next to nothing. Some of us have multiple copies sitting on our shelves at home. Listen, it's one thing to walk around in the dark when you don't have a light, but it's just plain foolishness to walk around in the dark when you are holding a light, but you never turn it on. Yeah, I'm afraid that's what many people, even many Christians, look like from God's perspective. Stumbling around in the dark, holding a light, 
but the light's closed. We walk around the darkness of the world, tripping over false teaching, falling into temptation to sin, wondering why our faith is faltering, and all the while, we're holding a light, but we never turn it on. Friends, the light does no good if you don't turn it on. Neither does God's Word do any good if we decide we have better things to do with our time than reading it, studying it, showing up, listening closely when it's taught by, by faithful teachers. We Listen, we have access to it. We've just got to get into God's Word. We don't just need it at the beginning of our Christian walk. Peter says we need to pay attention to it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That's just another way Peter's saying until Jesus comes back. Remember, that's part of the letter, right? The false teacher is saying Jesus isn't coming back. And he's saying, oh, yes, he is. And we need to pay attention to his word all the way up until he comes back. There's another Latin phrase coming from the Protestant Reformation, which is important. It's the phrase semper reformanda. It means always being reformed. Always being reformed. The reformers knew God's word was so important. And that humans are so prone to stray from truth that they emphasize Not only let's get back to God's word right now, but let's always keep going back to God's word. Always being reformed by God's word. Always letting God's word change us and shape us and mold us. Always looking for blind spots. Always comparing our beliefs and our practices with God's word. Because we're prone to wonder. And so we've got to constantly come back to God's word over and over and over again. Anytime we see that we're out of step with God's Word, we need to change so that we get in step with God's Word. Now, this takes a belief that Scripture, the Bible, is God's Word, and it takes humility to admit our faults when we realize that what we are believing or practicing is not in keeping with God's Word. This is where tradition can rear its ugly side. Not all tradition is bad. Some tradition is good. But when we keep believing something or doing something because that's the way we've always believed or that because that's what we've always done, even though God's word says otherwise, we're refusing to walk in the light of God's word. That's what the Catholic Church was doing. In fact, that's what they still do. They place a higher weight of authority on their church tradition than they do Scripture. And so where the two conflict, they default to tradition rather than to God's word. But the truth is that Protestant churches are often guilty of the same thing. Sometimes we are guilty of letting tradition dictate doctrine and practice rather than Scripture. But friends, until Jesus comes back, we must humble ourselves under the authority of God's Word and constantly seek to allow Scripture to light our way. It's a light. Scripture's a light that's never going to fade. It's never going to burn out. It's a light that will always accomplish its purpose. It's a light that can always be trusted. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my, fa- unto my path. Church family, can we say that to God about ourselves? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or are our unopened Bibles telling a different story? Only Scripture will light the way until Jesus returns. But what is so special about Scripture? That it should be the only foundation for our doctrine and the only light for our path. Short answer is this. Scripture is God's very Word. It is His very Word. And therefore, only Scripture carries the authority of God. Only Scripture carries the authority 
of God's third truth that I want to share with you. Why Scripture alone? Because only Scripture carries the authority of God. In verses 20 through 21, Peter explains where Scripture comes from. He writes this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Church, when we speak of Scripture, we are speaking of the very Word of God. Now, it was written down by people, but those people were being carried along, this text says, by the Holy Spirit. The words of Scripture were not ultimately coming from people, but from God Himself. The authorship of the Bible is a fascinating thing. Clearly, the words were written down by real people. I mean, here it's Peter, apostle of Jesus. He's writing this letter. The books of the Bible didn't just float down out of heaven and... Peter and other people just stumbled across them and picked them up. No, that they were, they were communicated through real people. Real people actually used their minds. They thought through their context. They considered their audience. They settled on a purpose and put pen to paper. In fact, the Bible was written by about 40 different people over the course of about 1,600 years, writing in three different languages and multiple literary genres. Now, if I told 40 different people from various cultures and various time periods and various languages to all write something about God, write a paper about God, you know what I'd end up with? 40 different papers about God. That's what I'd end up with. Not one complete book. But the amazing thing about the Bible is that it is one complete book. From Genesis to Revelation, everything in between, it is telling one story which should make us stop and say there must be someone else behind these words. And we know that there is, and we know that someone is God. The Bible was written down by humans, but God is ultimately responsible for all of the words that these individuals wrote. Those human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How did that happen? I don't know exactly. I don't know all the ways of God and exactly how that worked. But I know that the result were that the words written by these human authors were the very word of God. I heard this illustration many years ago, and, um, and it's helped me kind of think about this passage and how we got Scripture and the relationship between human authorship and, and divine authorship. Have you, ever, have you ever seen a moving sidewalk? You ever seen a moving sidewalk? Like in an airport, that's where I've seen them. It's basically a big conveyor belt, and you get on it, it's not, a, it's not an escalator. It's just going straight. But it's a big, big conveyor belt, and you get on it, and it just, it just takes you down the hall, basically. I, I don't know if moving sidewalk is the right word, but that's what I call it, a moving sidewalk. It's a big conveyor belt. You just get on it. Now, when you get on it, you can either stand still or you can walk. You can stand still, and it'll carry you, or you can, you can keep walking. But as you're walking, it's still carrying you. Now, if you choose to walk, you're putting in effort. You are. You're, you're, you're moving. You're doing something. But it's really the belt that's doing all the work. I mean, it is supporting your weight and it is carrying you to where you are headed. In a similar way, the human authors of Scripture were actually writing. They were actually doing something. They didn't just, again, stumble across the words of Scripture somewhere and pick them up. They were real people thinking real thoughts, writing real words on paper, writing to real people. And we see their individual personalities and ways of writing come out in their work. But behind every word, or we could say underneath every word, was the Holy Spirit carrying them every stroke of the pen. 
carrying them in the right direction, ensuring that every word was the word of God, that they wouldn't get off path. Paul described Scripture to Timothy as having been breathed out by God. Friends, Scripture is God's word, which means it carries ultimate authority. If God has spoken, the almighty God of this universe, then we must listen and we must obey If the Christians in Peter's day were going to hold true to sound doctrine and pursue godly living, then they needed to understand that Scripture was the final authority. The Reformers recognized that the Bible no longer um, held ultimate authority in the life of the Catholic Church, so they wanted Reformation to happen. And in many churches today, the Bible no longer is viewed as having ultimate authority. This is evident in the willingness of so many Christians and churches to change what they believe is right or wrong to match what culture says is right or wrong rather than sticking to what God's Word says is right or wrong. Let me give one example that's prominent in our world today. Many Christians and churches seem to be caving into cultural pressure to say that homosexuality and transgenderism and the, the whole LGBTQ plus identity movement is right when Scripture clearly says that it's wrong. You see, we can say we believe the Bible is the Word of God, but if we don't stand firm on what the Bible says, then we don't actually believe that it's God's Word. We're placing ultimate authority in something other than the Word of God. It's amazing how many people, even Christians, say that something like homosexuality is wrong until someone they love, a family member, or a close friend self-identifies as homosexual, then all of a sudden, for that person, homosexuality is right. It happens all the time. But God's Word didn't change. What changed? Well, their view of the Bible changed. They stopped believing the Bible as carrying ultimate authority. And listen, it's a danger for all of us. I'm just picking one example that's prominent, but there's all sorts of examples we could give. It's a danger for us all. And so we must be reminded, as Peter was reminding the Christians in his day, that Scripture doesn't ultimately come from man. And so we can't change it. It is what it is. God has said what he has said. It is not one opinion among many. It's not a human opinion. It's not produced by the will of man. It is produced by God himself. It is eternal truth. And thus it is the standard upon which we measure every belief and practice. We must believe what it says, church. We must do what it says. We must love people enough to tell them what God's Word says. No matter what opinion we have or hear, the Bible must always come out on top in our belief and in our practice. Why do we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? Because that's what God's Word says. Because Scripture alone dictates what we believe and what we do. Because we're trusting in Scripture alone as the foundation. Trusting in Scripture alone as the the light in providing the foundation for our doctrine. So let me just ask you again, what role does God's Word play in your life? Let me ask myself, what role does God's Word play in my life? What role does it play? Have you let it lead you to Jesus for salvation? We learn that in the Scriptures we're sinners, that Jesus loved us and died on a cross to rescue us from our sins, that He rose up from the grave, and that everyone who believes in Him for salvation will be saved. Have you allowed Scripture to lead you to Jesus for salvation? If you haven't, believe in Him today. Let God's Word penetrate your heart. It is living and active. And obey the call to trust in Christ. Christian, 
Is Scripture continuing to rule your life day by day? Is it driving you away from false teaching, driving you away from simple practices, and driving you into truth and into holiness and godly living? I just want to—I want to challenge you and encourage you with something as we close. Just a, just a simple challenge and encouragement to, 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 to read God's Word. So many ways that we can get God's Word into us, but it's just got to start with reading it. We're never going to know God's Word if we don't open up our Bibles and read it. Over the past year, um, I, I, I decided that as I read through the Bible, I was going to time myself. I have different reasons for doing this. Um, I can share with you later. I'm not going to go into details, but... Um, one of them, uh, one of them was for a challenge for my own self, um, and uh, just asking the Lord to convict me um, in some areas. But I, I timed myself. Okay, I might sound weird, but I, I did it. Okay, uh, I didn't try to speed read. Um, I tried to read at just a kind of a normal pace for for myself. And you know how long it took me to read through the Bible? It took me just under fifty four hours to read through the Bible. You know what that average is out to if you read every day of the year? That average is out to less than nine minutes a day. So no matter how fast or slow you read, you might read slower than me, you might read a lot faster than I do. About ten minutes a day, and you can read through the whole Bible in a year. Now, let me ask you a question. And I say this to challenge you and to challenge me. I want you to compare 10 minutes to how many minutes you spend on social media a day. How many minutes you spend watching the news every day. Remember, 10 minutes. Possibly even less. How many minutes do you spend watching sports? I mean, for, for, for some of us, we could have read the Bible multiple times this year, just since August, just in the time we've watched football or, or the World Series. I'll put myself in that category. I was asking him, that's convicting. But I also wanted to encourage you. We say we can't do it. We can't. <laughs> We say we don't have enough time. Good grief, we have more than enough time. The problem is, the problem is, we don't love God and His Word. We don't see it as the more sure Word. We don't see it as the light that we desperately need as we walk through a dark world that's full of dangers all along the way. Church family, we have a more sure word. We have a light shining in the dark. We have the very word of God. So what are we going to do with it? May we not ignore such a great gift. Would you pray with me? Father, convict our hearts and at the same time encourage our hearts. God, if we feel convicted today of of relegating Your Word kind of to the back seat of our lives, not placing the priority on it that it deserves, God, not standing firm on Your Word, God, we need to be convicted. We pray that You would prick our hearts, but God, we don't want to just stay feeling guilty. 
God, because you sent your son Jesus to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from our failure, to give you the praise and the time and the energy that you are worthy of. So God, forgive us and strengthen us to be people who go back to your word, always being reformed over and over again, constantly comparing what we believe, what we're doing, how we're living in the light of your word. And any time, God, we see that we have strayed even just a little bit in something that we believe or in something that we're doing, the way that we're living, God, by your grace, may we say yes to your word and no to whatever wrong thing we've been believing or practicing. And God, as your word is changing us, may we take your word those who need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray.